Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gold Podcast. My name is Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at South Bank Investment Research. And I'm joined today by John Butler, who is the chief executive and founder of the Lend and Borrow Trust Company. John, it has been a very long time since we've done one of these. Uh, we've got an awful lot to talk about today. Um, in terms of... In terms of, uh, let's start with start with the U.S. I thought I thought I think that's a, a good place to start. We've had a lot of a lot of drama in recent days uh, regarding uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, oil. Donald Trump's a uh, big uh, he really wants to reduce the reduce the price of oil, um, but in particular uh, the U.S. on its rate hike cycle. Uh, generally speaking, yeah. In a in a podcast uh, a while ago. And uh, we, you mentioned that the U.S. would start easing or would need to start easing at some point, you know, soon. What do you make of the current current environment for the U.S. and uh, and the Fed? Well, the Fed is, I mean, so far sticking to its guns, uh, which which is understandable given the fact that you could make the claim that they ended up with a bit of a credibility problem uh, over a multi-year period when they. They said they would tighten, they said they would hike, and they never really did. And then they finally got going. And so I guess there's a sense of the Fed now that part of it's simply a credibility uh, building exercise. Um, th- that said, I mean, you know, the, the the rate of growth in the U.S. has been okay. It hasn't been great, but it's been okay. Um, and until recently, and in fact quite recently, the stock market was still going up. Now that said, momentum had been coming off for a long time, and, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that um, in, in a minute. But so up to this point, the Fed has been following through. Um, I think, however, you have begun to see the the kind of second derivative turning of their rhetoric coming off a bit. <laughs> right, right. That's a bit wordy, but what I'm saying is, is that they're beginning to slightly change their language in a way that suggests that they still plan to hike, but they plan to hike relatively less and and or more slowly than they've been doing so far. Now, that hasn't been enough, however, to really reassure the stock market or, or other risky asset markets, um, which is which is understandable. I mean, the fact, things were pretty frothy for a while. Very. Um, so we might be in for a, a multi-month period of the Fed continuing to have a, a bias to hike, if a, if a smaller bias than prior, and indeed a couple hikes still coming through. But yes, I think that the the underlying trends in the asset markets and in the U.S. slash global economy more generally uh, will result in the Fed doing something not dissimilar than it's done in previous cycles, hike slowly over a period, multi-year period, but then all of a sudden, oops, right? right There's right. a realization that things are cracking. Right. And then you get this very disproportionate and asymmetric move back towards uh, cuts. Mm. So I, I think we're going to see that play out next year. Right. One of the uh, one of the interesting things that maybe we've not seen not seen uh, so much in the, in the past would be, uh, you know, public presidential pressure on the Fed to, uh, you know, to, to ease pretty much or to uh, or to, to or even cut rates. Uh, what what do you make of that? Do you think there is, the, do you think there is actual pressure on Jerome Powell? For, do you think he feels that, and he feels that he should he should somehow you know bow to to bow to the White House in any way, or is it really something that he can just uh, he, he can just he can just uh, sort of block out as it were? Because from my perspective, Jerome Powell, I mean, he's uh, you know net worth of over a hundred million dollars. Like he doesn't need you know the wage from from the Federal Reserve. He's uh, he he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't rely on it in the, in such a way. And he's not an academic, 
So it seems he has his own sort of objective that, he, that he's running on. He's not he's not come to the Fed in, in the way that Janet Yellen did. Um, so I think, uh, like from my perspective, he doesn't. Yeah, whatever it is he wants to do, he's gonna do it regardless of whatever uh, Trump says. Uh, but and yet Trump is very very keen on him, you know, not not hiking rates because then then things will start to go wrong. Well, Trump is um, Trump's a negotiator and a deal maker, and he also has a a very intuitive, if I think hugely misunderstood, ability to read the. The, the U.S. public that matters, that is the swing voter demographic that tends to move back and forth between supporting the Democratic Party, supporting the Republican Party, and also has this populist streak running through it. And of course, this is what got him elected. And, and he has a very good sense of how to communicate with these people. And what's interesting is that if you look at the history of the relationship between the executive and the Federal Reserve, there's always been this implied understanding that Ultimately, um, the while the Federal Reserve is independent, yes, of course, there is an implied amount of political pressure that can be applied by the chief executive, uh, the president. However, it's exceedingly rare that that happens. And it's rare in part because the Federal Reserve is a nonpartisan entity that, I mean, just to tell it like it is, basically represents Wall Street. It represents the interests of the financial sector. Oh, the cartel of banks. Well, yes. I mean, that's how it was set up. I mean, mm. let, and, and again, you can go all the way back to the way the Federal Reserve Act was was drafted in the ni- in 1912 and 13. Um, this is what was originally going to be called the Aldrich. Uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. It was uh, the 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 bill was drafted in secret. It wasn't it, it wasn't even um, shared with with many many influential senators and other. Uh, other people at the time until literally it was pretty much you know agreed by the big banks and i mean not to get too conspiratorial but okay so there's always been this understanding that that the fed um is nominally independent but but is nevertheless in certain respects a political entity but one that is a nonpartisan political entity um so it's exceedingly rare that a president actually weighs in um and famously, uh, the appointment of Paul Volcker at the Fed is, is considered to be the case by some political historians in the U.S. to be the primary reason why Jimmy Carter wasn't reelected, because Volcker went through a very dramatic tightening of monetary policy during even the late stages of Carter's reelection campaign and, and caused you know, severe credit distress. And you know, your typical household, they don't understand what's going on. They just know that they're facing imminent bankruptcy because their, their costs of borrowing are rising and they're going to get foreclosed on their house and whatnot. And so you know, this, uh, many people think that that was a, a, a big deal. So, so the Federal Reserve is also a political entity in that regard. And so mm. there is this interplay back and forth. Now, now let's, let's get back to the, the present day and Trump. Okay, what is he doing? I think it's a it's a cover my you know backside exercise to some extent. He is taking advantage of this populist demographic that is more aware today than they've been arguably ever in the history of the Federal Reserve. They're more aware today of the role that the Federal Reserve plays in regulating the economy for better or worse. Mm. And that awareness is something that Trump, I think, is also, he's also tuned in on. Um, and so he's basically saying, okay, look, Federal Reserve, you know, I, I, the economy is basically fine. Inflation's pretty low. Um, if you overdo it, it's your fault, not, not mine. mine. Yeah. And I want my base, this demographic, this swing demographic that got me elected, I want them to be informed right now 
who is to blame to if blame? things go badly wrong. So I think that's what he's doing. Now, mm. that doesn't mean the Fed will uh, indeed cave to him. Once again, does, does the Fed work for the president? No. Do they work for Wall Street? Well, sort of. <laughs> so it's not clear that Trump will win the fight with mm. the Fed, but he will win the fight for his demographic. Yeah. You know, when it comes down to whether his demographic will prefer supporting the Federal Reserve or for supporting Trump, I think it's pretty obvious who's going to win that one. Yeah, very much so. It's an interesting uh yeah, it's one of, one of the big questions is what it, what is the Fed actually? Because it's not a private corporation. It's not it's not private, and yet it's not public either. It's this sort of strange thing in between. Uh, you know the 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 way it works, where back commercial banks have to buy stock in the Fed, and then and then they receive dividends from the Fed. It's very. Do, do you have a view on on whether or not it actually is a private uh, private corporation or purely public because if if the if you know if the president can influence to some level then it you know it obviously isn't just a private corporation yeah, or is it really just something that's in between well the president has no uh, direct authority no, over no. the fed other than to uh, appoint uh, the the board of governors yes, yes. who have to be approved by the congress and that's really it however the president simply has the bully pulpit um, and can appeal to the public as Trump obviously does quite a lot, including through tweets and whatever else. Mm. Um, however, it is important to remember that even though the structure of the Federal Reserve is nominally private, as you as you describe, yes. look, it was still created by an act of Congress. The Fed's mandate is an act of Congress. It's updated from time to time. And, and if the Congress decided to reform the Fed, restructure the Fed, or shut down the Fed, as certain people or like. Or audit the Fed. <laughs> or audit the Fed, as yeah. Ron Paul pushed for for many years, um, they have the power to do so. Right. And now, obviously, it, it, again, it, it's it's not something that I would expect to happen or predict to happen. But, but the Fed is aware that, um, that in principle— Right, you know, they they do answer to the U.S. Congress, and the U.S. Congress can be hugely influenced by the president of the United States, should the president choose to weigh in, as Trump is beginning to do. Mm. So I, I I think that Powell is um, he's obviously a very savvy guy, very successful guy in uh, as an investment banker. In fact, I used to work on the same floor. Uh, as he did oh, really? uh, at, at Bankers Trust Plaza on Liberty Street uh, building, which was demolished following um, 9/11. Uh, in any event, so uh, no, he's he obviously he's done very well for himself, and I and I and I think that he's very very confident that he can manage uh, this 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 perhaps difficult role of trying to raise rates, trying to rebuild Fed credibility, and 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 establish his hawkish credentials, um, notwithstanding Trump's pressure. Right, right. One of the one of the things I um, I I, I sort of I, I was thinking about was if Powell did want to ease, like for, if if you know he wasn't hawkish and he actually genuinely thought, oh no, now is the time to either pause or or to ease, just uh, just to pause the rate hiking cycle. If he wanted to, would that not erode public confidence in the Fed in general? Because it would look like he was just caving to. Uh, to to whatever the president wanted. No, I, I think that's right. I yeah. think it's right. I, th- I think I think that Powell is going to sail as close to the wind as possible. Mm. He will establish his hawkish credentials to the greatest extent possible, uh, keeping two things in mind. As you say, number one, he he doesn't want to expose himself to to undue political pressure from from the White House, um, and on, but but more importantly, he of course does not want to crack. 
uh, asset markets to the point where he risks a causing a financial crisis. Now, that said, I mean, <laughs> a lot of people say, oh, you know, Powell's going to, the Fed's going to need to slow down or they might cause another financial crisis and, and they shouldn't do that. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, obviously, right, what, what, what caused the crisis in the first place was rates being too low for too long. I mean, that's, that's what led to, I mean, I mean, if you want to go back far enough, the Fed holding rates too low for too long arguably was the contributor to the stock market froth that collapsed in 1987. The savings and loan crisis and yep. credit boom that collapsed in 1990-91. Um, the financial crisis of 2008. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, you have to put the heart, you have to put the horse before the cart. Um, and, and the reason why the Fed occasionally ends up cracking asset markets and causing financial crises is because they're, 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 they're too late to set about raising rates. And, and I think we're simply going through a similar iteration this time around. Hmm. Moving on to, on to, of course, precious metals. This is the gold podcast after all. What do you make of the recent price action and relative to you know, political events and economic events uh, in, the, in, the last, in the last couple of months? Well, w the most astonishing thing to point out, uh, let's start with gold. The most astonishing thing to point out is if you look at the gold price uh, in dollars, I mean, let's, let's focus on the, the, the gold price in dollars. Um, it's been unbelievably stable during the, 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 the last phase of the bull market in, in stocks and other risky assets. And, of course, the sharp corrections that we've seen this year. We've seen two, right? Mm. There was the one earlier this year. In February, and then we, yeah. In, in the, in the, exactly. Yeah, and then there's the one that we've seen very, very recently. Um, gold has actually been, in a historical comparison, less volatile than normal this year, notwithstanding a spike in volatility in risky assets. What's going on? Well, look at the dollar itself. Uh, the dollar has been a, a strong currency this year. In fact, it's been a strong currency for several years. And, and this is, this is a due to general perception in the world, which is not necessarily misplaced, that the U.S. economy simply had um, you know, more strength and momentum behind it. Uh, than, than much of the world did. And of course, the euro area has its specific problems. Emerging markets are having their specific problems. But what's interesting is that gold has kept pace with the dollar, as it were, um, notwithstanding other currencies almost universally depreciating in value. And so actually, you know, if you look at gold versus a basket of currencies, it's, it's, it's done just fine. Mm. And, the, and the dollar is sort of the outlier. And so, but and the fact that gold has kind of been stable, notwithstanding the boom and bust of of, of the stock market this year, um, is, is is interesting. It's very interesting. And now let's place that alongside the following observation: if you look at the available data in the futures markets, which are the biggest contributor to short-term price volatility in gold, the leveraged community, the hedge fund community. Um, was essentially a record short gold going into the recent bounce in the gold price. And it's not a big bounce, it's a small bounce. Again, volatility's been pretty low, but you know, gold's done a bit better uh, in, in recent in recent weeks. So so we went into this with with these leverage players being unbelievably short gold. So gold actually held up reasonably well in price versus the strongest major currency in the world, the dollar, notwithstanding huge selling pressure by these leveraged players. You add this all up, and guess what it tells me? It tells me that if the dollar starts to weaken again, gold just keeps going up. And if those leveraged players become distressed because of other investments and other risky assets and they need to liquidate positions and, and, and you know, re return to benchmark, they're going to have to close their, their gold shorts. Mm. Put that together with just the fact that 
the world's a dangerous place, an unpredictable place. You know, we still have this trade war brewing between the U.S. and China, and, and, and. Yeah, unexploded uh, bombs uh, everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that the outlook for gold, not only fundamentally, but from kind of a speculative positioning point of view, is unusually favorable at the present time. On that theme of uh, strong dollar uh, and, uh, yeah, well, a weakening dollar being good for gold, there was an interesting uh, observation by uh, Luke Groman uh, here that he made on Twitter with uh, central banks in general being net sellers of U- U.S. treasuries over the last, since the financial crisis, but being uh, big buyers of gold ever, ever since then. Uh, which you know, which is sort of very contrary to the uh, sort of the established world order, where you buy, where yeah, U.S. Treasuries being the most liquid, uh, well, very liquid in instruments and dollar instruments, of course, uh, and gold being the you know the tradition, the the relic that no one really really minds. So since since the financial crisis, if central banks are the ones buying gold and selling dollars, it would, uh, if that trend continues, you would think that this would uh, this would definitely have have some kind of impact. On uh, you know the strength of the dollar and uh, and the price of gold, especially when uh, a cheaper dollar would mean would mean uh, higher gold prices. Well, on on the subject of the of the dollar, actually, I uh, there was a there was a tweet I found uh, the other day which was uh, really qu- really quite uh, quite strange. Uh, I, I won't say who it was by to begin with, but uh, just say just hear what what you thought of what they said. Since 1970, the United States government has printed at least 21 trillion dollars and injected it into the world economy without any gold backing, therefore giving credit to useless paper and receiving free goods from other countries. Hashtag dictatorship of dollar. <laughs> what, 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 would you, what would you make of that statement? Well, look, this is, this is effectively the decision that was made by Paul Volcker and others in the late 60s and early 70s when it was clear that the so-called London gold pool yes, yeah. was falling apart, largely because France was was openly defecting, but some other countries were quietly kind of siding with France, um, using them for diplomatic cover. And and eventually in 1971, it all blows up, and Nixon closes the gold window, and you know henceforth, you know the, the dollar will be completely unbacked. Okay. The thing is this, is that once you remove the gold backing, then, then basically, yes, you're basically just saying that, that countries, if they, if they want to hold dollars, they're holding something which can simply be printed at will by the United States to finance imports from the rest of the world. And, and so that it's no coincidence that the closing of the gold window corresponds with when the U.S. Uh, trade uh, what used to be a trade surplus becomes a very large trade deficit and or so-called current account deficit if you generalize to include all uh, monetary flows. Yes. And and so it kind of corresponds to when that, that swings and, it, and then it just keeps going and going and going and going. So basically the U.S. has been printing money to finance, um, well, everything. Um, and, and a lot of that is sourced abroad. It's sourced abroad because the world has continued by convention to use dollars as the primary reserve store of value. But now let's go back to your previous point, central banks uh, post-crisis actually being net sellers of treasuries and accumulating gold. Implies that some kind of change in the plumbing of the... That's right. That's right. And, and this is where and this is, this is is where the super tanker analogy is very, very useful, right? Um, a, a super tanker takes... Oh, I forget. There, there's some there's some rule of thumb here, right? If you take if you, if you take if you take a, a super tanker, and they're traveling at at whole speed, which basically they're they're cruising they're cruising speed, which is oh you know whatever it is twenty knots or something like that, right? 
And if they're trying to turn 90 degrees, it's ta- it takes something like five miles. miles. Or ten- yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a huge it's a huge distance to get them to turn even a moderate amount. Um, but once they do start turning, you can't you stop it. You, you can't, you can't turn back, right? You can't. I mean, it's just it just keeps going and going and going. And uh, but you can't see it happening while it's happening until it's 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 unstoppable. And, and I think that's kind of what's going on with central banks. I, I think that central banks. And I think this may be a largely unconscious process. In some respects, I think it may be conscious, especially if you're talking about Russia, uh, and we can elaborate on that in a minute. But it might be unconscious, just the fact that central banks simply um, felt that they were undiversified. They were holding too many dollars. And mm. they just, it's just pure, just, just pure, just, just common sense. Hey, you know, we should maybe accumulate a bit of gold because we, gosh, well, we're holding so many dollars, but we don't exactly trust the future of the euro. And, and Japan has this colossal debt problem and negative interest rates and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it, you know, show me a currency that actually has truly sound long-term fundamentals. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible to find one. Mm. And so gold by default just sort of, re-rates uh, in the central banker's mindset as something that helps to stabilize and diversify their reserves. But then back to Russia, uh, in Russia's case, there obviously was a very, very conscious decision made um, following the financial crisis to dramatically accelerate their accumulation of gold and more recently to dramatically accelerate the outright selling of, of treasuries. Russia now holds a treasury position, which is inconsequential. Yeah, I mean they they cut pretty pr- much. Pr- pretty much. I, I mean, it's argu- arguably they are the reason it was the Russian selling uh, earlier this year that actually pushed the U.S. ten-year over over three percent. Possibly, yeah. possibly. I, I think I think if you look at the overall size of the flows involved, Russia is a, is a small player. But hey, prices are set at the market. But they, it was all it was all in one month, really. Uh, well, yeah, they, they they I mean they had they had the, the trend had already been in place, but then yes, this huge wave there was of just selling one big comes through. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and so Russia R- Russia is clearly doing this consciously and and they're probably doing it for a variety of reasons, not only trying to um, dramatically uh, uh, stabilize their reserves with with uh, a huge holding of gold, uh, but also preparing possibly for even more severe sanctions. It was interesting on on the topic of Russian sanctions. Uh, I read an article from earlier this month. I think it was scmp.com, but uh, the Russian prime minister had said uh yeah, well, I, I, won't, I won't quote him because I can't remember the exact quote. But he said, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. But I actually think the U.S. sanctions against us were a good thing because they forced us to do what uh, to de-dollarize pretty much, uh, which is something that we should have done 10 years ago, which, uh, which is uh, an interesting, an interesting take on it. You know, the U.S. sanctions, well, while they've, they've just accelerated a process that we really wanted to do. Anyway, and uh, and start and stop using the dollar for for their transactions. I mean, they're already trading a lot with uh, with the Chinese in RMB. Um, though it looks like uh, the Saudis now are are now going to be the largest supplier of oil to China and uh, knock and knock Russia out of the way. But uh, aside from that, just uh, on that the original the the person who actually uh, who did that did that tweet, which was in which was in September of this year, was actually Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Which was, uh, you know, really, you don't really look to uh, to to gentlemen like that for uh, for no, you know, economic advice. But I thought it was uh, there's a certain there's a certain irony, I suppose, with uh, with Iran being this you know this outlier and being described by uh, by the U.S. as sort of this rogue rogue state, etc. Um, is the one pointing out the kind of problems in the dollar system which until now haven't really been. Uh, haven't really been acknowledged, certainly by the sort of the Washington elites, uh, the financial people, because it's always going to be the U.S. dollar is going to be the the world reserve currency, 
and, th and that's that's just how it is. Uh, on the topic of Iran, it's interesting that, uh, that uh, about these waivers that are being uh, being written for uh, Iranian oil imports, as that's oil has become very very politicized. Do you do you have any do you have any thoughts on on the on the recent furore on on oil, or is it a? Well, I mean, look, I'm not a I'm not a geopolitical analyst, and I'm not an oil market expert. That said, I am a I am a student of economic history and. What you can clearly identify is that U.S. economic policy, international economic policy, has clearly been intertwined with with security policy and energy policy, um, at, you know, at least since the 1960s, if not if not before. And in fact, some people will go so far as to say that World Wars One and Two were were fought over oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's that's a, that's a very sophisticated argument to make. But actually, the more I the more I read that sort of research, the more convinced I am that there's a lot of truth in that. In any event, back to the present. Um, I think there are some very smart people in Washington who, um, along with Paul Volcker himself, um, always kind of knew that this decision to close the gold window and move to a pure you know printing press reserve system. Um, would eventually have a sell-by date. But it just seemed so long-term, and the political winds were always blowing the other way. And, and, and I think that it's just, it's just it's something that I guess people just never felt that there, there was sufficient political capital to try and reform and, and reset in some sensible, proactive way. Mm. Um, now, Paul Volcker, that's, uh, that said, Paul Volcker has occasionally made sort of cagey comments in recent years, including when he was implicitly very clearly criticizing Paul Krugman for suggesting that the Fed hadn't done enough to stimulate the economy. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, and Paul Volcker, of course, has a reputation of being a hard money man, having raised interest rates aggressively in the late 70s and early 80s um, to try and get uh, the dollar stabilized and to get in inflation under control. And that was very, very successful. Um, but I think that, that, I, I think that there is there is a group of people in Washington who, who, who do understand there's a problem here and, and would like to try and do something about it, but there's just not enough political capital to get it done. Hmm. Um, and that's why I think it's much more likely when you take a look at what Russia's doing, what China's doing, what Saudi Arabia is doing, and what, to be fair, a lot of the rest of the world, I think, is doing, um, either very openly or in more cases, I suspect, behind closed doors, um, they are... Um, responding to what is an unsustainable situation. And they're trying to do so in a way that doesn't cause a big crisis, that doesn't cause uh, a row with the United States, but you know, they are doing it. And, 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 I, and I don't think this is, a, this is, this is a, a black and white situation. I mean, it's, you know, the U.S. is a huge economy. It's very successful in so many respects. I mean, yes, it has issues. Tell me a, a large economy that doesn't. The idea that the dollar goes from being, uh, you know, the dominant reserve currency to being just a piece of paper overnight—I don't think it's necessarily going to happen that way. Mm. Um, but it could be that if you're willing to wait, you know, a, a, some period of time, the dollar will end up being more just kind of first among equals. Yeah, another, just another one of many. That's reserve right. Currencies. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and this is and this and this is a thesis I put forward in my book that the dollar may be first among equals, but that is itself an unstable situation where. You know, nobody controls the printing press anymore, and they're all well. They all control their, their printing press, but they're all maybe trying to de devalue their weight of prosperity, which is a negative sum game, ultimately. Um, 
And I think it eventually could catalyze, you know, the outright official remonetization of gold. But the pressure comes from this international dynamic. I, I don't see this the bottom-up grassroots support for it in the United States, notwithstanding arguably Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan um, being willing to sort of countenance the possibility that that is a sensible long-term solution for the mess the U.S. has got itself into with its excessive reliance on, on, on the Fed and easy money to keep its economy going. One of the uh, something on the on the international level on the on the adoption of uh, of the dollar generally, there's an interesting argument uh, I've 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 looked into recently where, effectively, the U.S. wants the eurozone to break up. Like it's an implicit desire of the U.S. to to for the eurozone to break up, because uh, prior to the formation of the euro, Germany was uh, financing the U.S. They were buying all these U.S. treasuries. And now all they're doing is financing Southern Europe. So if Eurozone breaks up, well, that's a lot of economic surpluses that Germans, mm. the German manufacturing base creates uh, that would you know, then get reinvested into U.S. US treasuries. And now, since German, Germany went into the euro, since the euro, euro was formed, um, China pretty much took up the slack, slack in, in buying these U.S. treasuries. Uh, and uh, I think Luke Groman has uh, estimated it's between 10 and 50% of U.S. deficits were financed by China over the net, over the following ten years after uh, they were brought into the World Trade Organization, um, but now with China now being uh, well now not no longer accumulating treasuries, the U.S. needs needs a uh, a new buyer to enter the market. So you know, well with the, with the eurozone crisis, you know, it seems like the, there might be uh, there might be some kind of opportunity for that. What do you make of the uh, the state of the euro at the moment? Well, just just quickly on, on the U.S. position here, I think the I think the U.S. has always been of two minds regarding the EU and the euro. Um, now, keep in mind that that before the EU really became a, a an important political entity, there was NATO, right? And and NATO is clearly an alliance of you know, Western Europe mm-hmm. and and the United States, and of course NATO has expanded um, in 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 recent years, but the EU sort of comes along as um, a, a European organization which in some ways is almost like a, it's almost like an economic NATO just just without the US you know, formally being part of it but the US providing security for it and so I think I think up to a point the US was in fact very supportive of the EU but then of course the euro project comes along and as you say I think that the US has always been kind of divided about you know whether they wanted this theoretical rival to the dollar to succeed or, or, or not succeed. I, and, I, and I suspect the U.S. elites have never really made up their mind about that. Do I think that somehow they 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 sought to undermine the euro? No, I don't think so. I don't see evidence of that. Um, oh yeah, I mean it's more more an apathy rather yeah, than a yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but the problem is the problem now is that is that because you do have a resurgent Russia, and to a lesser extent, of course, there's China, but China's not not in, in, in the EU's backyard the way Russia is. Um, I, I think that there is is concern now in the in, in the in the US that if the euro fails, it actually implies uh, that the net beneficiary in terms of their economic slash political influence in Europe is Russia, not the US. Russia has the energy that Germany Inc. desperately needs to mm-hmm. manufacture its high value add products. And in fact other economies are desperate for for Russian energy. And then, of course, you have some deeply in, uh, indebted countries who could do with an injection of funds from someone who has deep pockets, be it um, China, the Middle East, uh, you know, who knows where it might be. 
And indeed, there were rumors circulating during the Greek crisis that they were speaking to China about um, about bailing them out and assuming yes, some of their debt. Yes. So uh, I, I think there's – look, there are lots of, lots of pieces moving on this chessboard. And again, I'm not a geopolitical analyst, and I, I wouldn't have you know, a high degree of confidence in my ability to predict any specifics. But again, as a student of history, there are certain general conclusions that you can draw. Um, the euro area does have a, a very, very serious problem, right? Uh, and, and, and the problem, oddly enough, even though it grabs all the headlines, you know, the problem is not you know, Brexit causing a rift with the EU. No, no. The problem is deep within the EU itself, and, 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 and it's Italy, which is a founding member <laughs> of the EU. Uh, Italy is trying to renegotiate its relationship with the EU, and that includes possibly its uh, role within the euro system. And that, that, is, the, that is really the, 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 the serious problem that, that needs to be resolved here. Oh, very and, much, and, yeah. and I don't know what, that, what the solution is, um, but that, 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 that really shakes confidence in the sustainability of the euro. That is the fact that Italy has this populist government that seems willing to you know, go there and, and fundamentally question its relationship with these European institutions. So that, that, that to me is, 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 is very much worth watching. Very much, very much. My uh, my colleague Nikolai Hubble has uh, written a book recently on on the subject, which was just launched, called "How the Euro Dies," which is based entirely upon upon this this premise that Italy is going to is go is going to cause you know the is going to cause the uh, it's the beginning of the end pretty much for the euro. But I'm afraid we do that is all pretty much we have time for most of mo- mostly today. John, would you like to tell us a bit about how things are going at the Lend and Borrow Trust Company? Well, yes, we're continuing to grow, um, and I think that's understandable because we offer the unique value proposition to owners of gold and silver to be able to borrow against their metal in order to generate liquidity for whatever purpose, to acquire more metal, to invest in other assets, for temporary liquidity needs. And uh, the, the cost of borrowing on our platform is extremely low because, of course, you pledge your metal as collateral. And so it's a form of secured borrowing. And the lenders who work on our platform and offer the liquidity, um, they like the security. So it's it's a lower cost. It's about way as to, secure as it gets. Well, right? there you go. So it's a lower cost way to borrow for borrowers. It's a lower risk way to lend for lenders. You know, both sides win. Um, and really, the only losers, I guess, if there are any here, are the are the banks and other financial institutions who don't care to to do this kind of business. You know, we we decided to fill this niche because we sensed there was demand for it. And sure enough, there uh, is demand. There is demand, mm. and we're pleasantly surprised. And for anyone listening, uh, to, to, to yes, inquire? Yes, you, you can learn all about our value proposition, both from the borrower pers- perspective or the lender perspective, at our website, uh, lendborrowtrust.com. That's one word, lendborrowtrust. Perfect. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to have you on again. My name is Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at South Bank Investment Research, and this has been another episode of the Gold Podcast after quite a long time. But I, ho- I hope you keep listening. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you.